This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Let's pray. Father, again we come before your throne of grace. Again, asking for grace, Lord, that we may worship uh, this morning, continue in worship now as we consider the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that you bring it home to our hearts, make it effective in our lives. Lord, make uh, yourself known to us in a real way as our Lord, King, and as the one who takes away our sin. Savior. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone in this room today who does not know You in that way, know You in truth, as Savior and Lord, Lord, we pray that You would make Your Word effective in their hearts today by the power of Your Spirit, and that this would be the day they would humbly submit to You and to Your Lordship, crying out to You for forgiveness of sins. And enable all of us, Lord, to walk in dependence as we move through this world, looking to You to provide grace, help in every situation we face and acknowledging You as our source, and loving You above all things. Do it, we pray, Lord, for our good and for Your honor and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Wesley, you mind killing that red mic for me? Amen. The uh, Christian life and Christian theology uh, is filled with paradoxes, and uh, that's become a that's become a fascinating thing to me. And it's just one of the ways in which um, we see as we as we study and as we learn and we grow, um, we see how that. Uh, it's true that God's thoughts are higher than ours. Ours, God's ways, far above ours. I mean, there's so much that we don't understand now, and and uh, and don't let this discourage you. But there there's so much that we're never going to understand. <laughs> I'm confident of that. The more the more that I look at Scripture, the more that I contemplate God and His infiniteness. Uh, the more I'm convinced of that. Because we're finite. One paradox that we've been uh, looking at over the past few Wednesday nights, and, and by the way, a, a paradox, if you're not familiar with the term, is, is just, um, I, I would say it this way, it, it is an apparent contradiction. That is, it looks like a contradiction, but it's really not. And I want to emphasize that part. It's really not 
a contradiction. We do not hold contradictions in the Christian faith. That, that would make absolutely no sense. It would, it would just be total uh, irrationality. God does not hold contradictions. For example, God cannot be God and, and not be God at the same time. God is God. So we're not talking about contradictions. We're, we're talking about things that, on the surface, appear to be contradictions. Uh, one we talked about Wednesday night. That is, the absolute sovereignty of God and the free will of man. That sounds like contradiction. It's a paradox. Um, because when we talk about the freedom of man, we don't mean that man is free in the same way that God is. So, in, in the same way that God is absolutely sovereign. There's a sense in which man is free and has free will. As we talked about Wednesday, um, man is free. The unregenerate man is free to do what he wants, but he's not free to do what he ought because he's in bondage to sin. So he can be, again, a paradox. In bondage and free at the same time. In bondage to sin, yet free to do what you want. Because that's how bondage to sin plays out. You want to sin, and so you do what you want. So that's a paradox. Or what about the Trinity? One God, three persons. That's a paradoxical truth. But there's no contradiction there because we don't mean that God is one and that He is three in the same way. And that's why historically distinction has been made, for example, uh, in essence and person. One in essence, we're talking about one being, one God. That's why we say one God. God is one. Scripture clearly says that. One in essence, yet three in person. There is a distinction in person, in persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So God, the eternal um, one God, exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And though it's impossible, I would say, for us to fully understand that, nevertheless, it's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. It's a paradox. Another paradox that we're faced with today, and one that I, I really find fascinating, and of course I never, uh, uh, you know, when you, when you come to Scripture truth and, and, and you prepare to present it, whether it's in a, a sermon form like this or whether it's one-on-one with an individual, I never feel like I do it justice. And certainly when you, when you come to these types of truths and, <laughs> and they're just so fascinating, you, you, you want to do them justice and just fall so short, but here it is. In fact, I'm going to say it this way, uh, because this is one of the ways the Scripture says it. Uh, that Jesus is both lion and lamb. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? If you know anything about the animal kingdom, and if you know anything about lions, and you know anything about lambs, that sounds like a contradiction. If, if we just had that... That one analogy, let's say, let's say one or the other, but let's start with lion. If we just had that one analogy, um, okay, and, and we could we could take that like like the scripture does. We could understand, like we're going to point out here in a minute, that Jesus is king. Lion is the king of beasts, right? And 
Scripture says he turns away from none. Or when we think in terms of majesty, and you've ever looked at a male lion with his flowing mane, um, pretty awesome sight. Uh, most it seems like, at least you know, when I've encountered them, it's always been with a fence between me and them. That's the way I like it. The way I want to keep it at, at the zoos. And basically, all they do is lay around and sleep, from what I've seen. But uh, <laughs> but they still they still have this majestic look about them. Beautiful animal. And again, there's an analogy there. We can understand Jesus is king, and and we understand from that something about his majesty. It gives us a, a, an illustration we can we can look at. On the other hand, what if we just had the analogy of a lamb? And again, we're going to talk about in a moment about Jesus' meekness and how He came to serve. We've been talking about that the past few weeks. And He said that He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And He came, in one sense, quietly. Again, a paradox, because if you go back and look at the birth account of Jesus... Here he is, born in an obscure area, in a manger, in a stable, as we understand it, what we picture, a feeding trough, basically. And yet, at the same time, his his coming is announced by the heavenly host to the shepherds out in the field. So, on one hand, it's like he... Sneaks in, right? I mean, you know, just he wasn't born in a palace in Jerusalem or born in the temple or something like that. He's born in a manger in Bethlehem. But on the other hand, all of the heavenly hosts, at least in one locale, are proclaiming his coming and God's peace and goodwill, or peace toward those of goodwill. So again, a paradox. Jesus is lying. And Lamb. He's king and he's servant. Now, what we have before us today is what is, has uh, been commonly called the triumphant entry. You may have that heading in your Bible. This is where Jesus, the triumphal entry, this is where Jesus comes to Jerusalem or to that area for the last time because we're down now to the last week of his life in ministry as a man. He has come, as we've already seen, as we've already noted at least on three occasions, that He's come to die. That's, uh, for example, chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. But for some three and a half years now, he's, He's been walking about village to village, in Israel, doing miracle after miracle. One of the most recent ones being the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That account is in John 11. And word is spread about his teaching and his works. And he now has multitudes of people following him. And expectations are high for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Another important point because... 
how many times? I, I did a search this morning. I don't even remember what the number was. But you, you can do a search for the word kingdom in the book of Matthew. It is a major theme. Jesus has come to um, announce the coming of the kingdom. With His coming, it, it comes. And by the way, there again is another paradoxical truth. We live in what is often called the already and the not yet. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? That's, that is what we know as kingdom life. And so you may, you, you look at passages in the Scripture. Um, well, uh, let's say in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. Is that for us? Does that apply now? Some people say no. Some people say that's for a future time. That's for His, for his earthly reign in the millennial, uh, millennial reign. Well, I would say it's both. And all of the truths that Jesus is, is, is uh, expounding about the kingdom are applicable now and future. We live in the already and the not yet. That is, He's already our Lord. We're, we're already living as citizens of the kingdom. But then, in a real sense, much of it is not yet. We, we, we don't yet know the fullness of it. We still struggle with sin. So the fullness of our salvation, that is, deliverance from the presence of sin in us, is future. It's not yet. You may have been struggling just this day with certain things and wondering, why? I know the Lord. I know He's my Savior. I know He's forgiven me. I'm I'm committed. I want to love Him. I want to serve Him. I want to glorify Him. Why am I dealing with sin? If I'm saved, because you're living in the already and the not yet. You're living in the midst. You're living out a Christian paradox. Well, let me go back to the triumphal entry here. Um, here Jesus rides into Jerusalem in what uh, some have called a coronation. All hail the power of Jesus' name, we, we sang earlier. And that's, that's more or less what's taking place here. The multitudes, the masses, are now recognizing Him as the Messiah. Now, uh, they don't have all the right ideas. And, and they are, obviously, looking for um, the reestablishment of a natural earthly kingdom. Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David. I mean, that, what they're looking for immediately, what they're looking for is freedom from Roman rule. That Jesus would reestablish the sovereignty of the nation of Israel and reign as king. And that's not to be the case. He's doing a different thing at this point in history. But He is king nonetheless. And they are recognizing His kingship Nonetheless, and that's what we're seeing in the first few verses. And, and let me just walk through some of this. And this, this is uh, again, I'm making this contrast between his kingship uh, and his and his servanthood, or uh, using the analogies we spoke of earlier, the fact that he is lion and lamb. Chapter 21, verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, and again, as we pointed out, they're they're coming here. Uh, so that within about a week's time, he is going to die. He's going to be delivered up and die at the hands of sinners. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, 
Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. And that's one of those, don't try these at home. You know, don't, don't go get somebody's car, and, and you know, when they start yelling at you, say, The Lord needs it, brother, and I'll be back. <laughs> It is amazing, though, that through all this, Jesus is in total control. He's king. He's the sovereign Lord. And He's already begun to make this clear. Well, He's, he's made it clear uh, from the beginning. It's just that we're all slow, like the disciples were. So he's, he's told them at least three times now what He's going to Jerusalem for, what He's going to do. It is all His plan. It is, it, it is a fulfillment of the reason He came. And He's not just somehow making the big things happen as if they could happen without the little things being in place. He's making every detail work out according to His will. That is encouraging for you and I because I think uh, that I can safely say that that applies to us and, and what goes on in our life just as much as it did in His. Why is that? Because He orders all things. Because He moves all things, Colossians says. All things are sustained by Him. So He tells the disciples, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied. And that's not because He snuck ahead and tied a donkey up you know, and came back and told them. Um, it's possible that he that that he uh, had arranged this. I suppose I I, I don't think so, but uh, it's possible that these people are people that know him, so that when they when they hear the Lord needs it, uh, they know that they're talking about Jesus, and they say, okay, you know, take it. It's possible, but it's not necessary. It's not necessary because Jesus is King, and He rules over all. He sent. A wind and a storm to shake the boat that uh, Jonah was in when Jonah was running from the presence of the Lord. When the other sailors cast Jonah overboard, God sent a fish. <laughs> God sent a fish. I mean, He told a fish. I don't know if He created a special fish for that or if it was a, a whale, blue whale, gray whale. I don't know what it was or some big fish. But God sent a fish. God ordered a fish to go swallow Jonah. And God preserved, like we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, God preserved Jonah in the belly of that fish. And Jonah cried out to God from the belly of that fish, and God ordered the fish to spit Jonah out. And the fish spit Jonah out, not 3,000 miles out in the middle of the ocean somewhere, but he spit him out on dry land. What I'm saying is God is in control. Jesus is in control. He, he orders all things. So He says, go, go to the city in front of you, the village in front of you. You're going to find a donkey tied with a colt. You take the donkey and the colt, which the other writers tell us is a colt that nobody had ridden before. Again, another example of His sovereignty because He's going to get on it and ride it. And, and believe me, you don't just do that. I used to have a, a, a jack um, little donkey that he was young and he was he, he thought he was the biggest thing on earth I think but um, he was young and, and and if you ever his name was Jake 
And if you ever ask Leslie about Jake, she can tell you some interesting stories. He, uh, you know, she, she, he, he thought he could push her around, and he did push her around. And, <laughs> and there, you don't just get on one that's never been riding. What I used to do, and I never did wind up riding Jake, but I used to take sacks of feed and put them on his back, trying to get him used to it. And uh, <laughs> um, I, I can just tell you, they're they're not real cooperative. Uh, for the most part. Uh, I mean, it's not natural. I mean, you can break them, but they're not just naturally cooperative. So Jesus is, tells them, go and you, you'll find a donkey and a colt that's never been ridden before. Just bring it to me. And if anybody says anything to you, just say, the Lord needs it. And then we're told they do this just exactly as He directed. That's in verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And we're told again by the other writers that uh, somebody did say something. And they told them exactly what Jesus said. The Lord has need of it. And they were, they were released to go. And then Jesus gets on this donkey that has never been ridden, this young colt, and rides it into Jerusalem. Now, um, verse 4, Matthew does, as he does so often, points to Old Testament prophecy to make the point that this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And what he's doing is what he's been doing all along. What Matthew is doing here is what he's been doing all along. He's making the case that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King. So what we have, the scenario here, is the King. Matthew's saying the King is fulfilling a prophecy about Him, about the King, the coming King, and riding into Jerusalem just as the Scripture foretold. That's uh, verse 5, and this is from Zechariah 9.9. 9. Verse five, uh, verse 4, rather, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold your king coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, did you see a paradox in that verse? Note the word king. Behold, your king is coming to you how? Humble. Humble. Your king. Your king is coming to you humble. This is one of the evidences of our slowness, and I'm, and I'm lumping us in with all of mankind here, I, because I think if we had been in the position of the, of the Jews in the first century, but for God's grace, of course, <clears throat> we would have all done the same thing they did. And it went over our head just like it went over their head. Jesus would have come, talked to us face to face, spoke to us, done all the signs, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't have had a clue. But, but isn't it amazing? God told him centuries before that he was going to come like this, humbly. They should have been looking for a king coming humbly. And, and they really weren't. And even now, as I said, though they are uh, recognizing him as he's riding into town, um, their ideas of what is about to play out totally different from the reality. 
They want a conqueror. Yes, Jesus is a conqueror, but He didn't come to conquer the Romans. He came to achieve victory over death. Conquer sin and death. My, uh, I told this in Sunday school, but my uh, former uh, brother-in-law um, passed away this past week, and uh, just I I had an uh, amazing conversation with him on Monday. And he died Tuesday, 1 a.m. Tuesday morning. But um, the pastor that was doing the funeral said that when he was speaking with him Monday evening, he removed the oxygen mask, the CPAP mask. And, you know, he had family in the room and he removed the mask and he said, death has no grip on me. (laughs) Uh, Jesus did come to conquer. (laughs) Came to conquer sin and death. And he's done that. He's won the victory over that. But that's not the kind of victory they were looking for. But he's king nonetheless. In fact, he's king in truth. And here again is the paradox. Your king is coming humble, mounted on a donkey. You know, not a valiant you know, steed, horse, um, riding in with his mane flying. He's riding a donkey. It's pretty humble. On a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They, they brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put their cloaks, put on them their cloaks and sat on, uh, He sat on them. Verse 8 says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread, on them, spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before Him and that followed Him were shouting. Now, let me come back to that in just a moment. So, here, here comes the king. The real king. The real king. Not the Budweiser king. Here comes the lion king. Not the Disney one, but the lion of the tribe of Judah. <laughs> Every, everything that he has faced. Now, as I already said, they don't fully understand this, but... Everything he has faced, he has demonstrated his sovereignty over. He's been confronted with all manner of sickness and disease. And at his touch, or even without a touch, at his word, there would be instant healing. He was confronted with forces of nature, like the storm on the lake. And at His command, the winds and the waves obeyed. He was confronted with demonic forces. Sometimes one, sometimes legion. And whether it was one or whether it was legion, they had no power over Him. And they had to do His bidding. And they couldn't even refrain themselves, though they refused to submit. 
uh, to him in, in the sense of giving him praise and honor, they couldn't refrain themselves from crying out, You're the Holy One of God! Have you come to torment us before our time? Because they knew that He was the sovereign King. He's demonstrated His authority repeatedly. And even in His teaching, and even those who didn't really understand who He was and realize, believe maybe, uh, still were struck by how He taught. He taught as one having authority, they said, not as the scribes do. And He did. We talked about that when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Where the prophets of old would say, Thus saith the Lord. Jesus would say, I say unto you. He spoke with authority. He acted with authority. Because He's the King. And yet, Zechariah says, He comes humble. Again, the paradox. King, humble. How can you have a humble king? Have you ever, have you ever seen humility? And, and I know this, this is difficult for us anyway as Americans. Well, we, we don't have a king. We're not used to being, um, we just don't have that mentality. But p- people still seem to love to some extent the idea of it. So they, for example, they talk about, you know, uh, the Kennedys being a dynasty or, you know, royalty. <laughs> The closest thing you've heard you've heard reporters say it's the closest thing we've had to to royalty here, or if uh, the prince in England is married, you know we've got millions of viewers here. People are fascinated by it. But if you watched one of those weddings, and I didn't watch either one, Charles and Diana, or the most recent one, but if you watched one of those, and I did see some clips from them, did you stand back and say, "My, how humble these people are." I'm going to just guess that that probably was not your impression. And we may see in our lifetime the coronation of a new king of England. Um, And if we do, you're going to see a lot of pomp and ceremony. Probably not a lot of uh, recognizable humility. Jesus is the Lion, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who rules. And yet, Zechariah says he comes humble. And Paul says in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself. He was in the form of God, existed in the form of God, because he's God. Always has been. Always will be. Never ceased being God for a moment. But He emptied Himself of His glory and came and took on the form of a servant and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So, He became this, this King who, again, I want to I emphasize, He never ceased for one second being King. He never stopped being the Lord of glory, King of glory. He never has, He never will. But He took on another aspect. He always was the Word. 
the eternally existing God, Word of God, but He became flesh, John 1.14 says. And why did He do that? Well, John the Baptist pointed it out early in Jesus' ministry. He's the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The King. The Lion King. The Lion of the tribe of Judah is also a lamb. Revelation calls him the lamb slain. Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, one verse says. So, he's the king of glory. He orders all things. He has power and authority over all things. And yet, he came... To die. He came humbly to lay down his life for his people. In John 10, he calls himself the good shepherd. He uses that analogy there and says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So he came to die for his people. Or as we noted in previous weeks, he came to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. So he's the lion and he's the lamb. Now let me show you this paradox and using those analogies in, in one text. You may want to hold your place here, but look at Revelation chapter 5. And John is describing this, the, the Apostle John here is describing a scene in what we might call the, the throne room of God. And in chapter 4, there God is pictured sitting on a throne and there's all the praise going on around Him, which we'll come back to in a moment. And it is continual. And it is loud. And then John says in chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now pay attention to that. What what did the angel tell him? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's worthy. There is someone that's worthy. So he's don't weep. Who is it? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. And verse 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Yeah, there's, there's our paradox. Is he the lion or is he the lamb? Yes. <laughs> yes. 
And isn't it interesting too, another paradox, he's standing as though he had been slain. Well, is he standing or has he been slain? Most people that have been slain don't stand. But again, the answer is yes. And by the way, if you can conquer death, if you have the power to conquer death, then, then yes, you can be slain and then stand. <laughs> He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and He's the Lamb standing in the midst of the throne. The Lamb slain. The Lamb slain to take away the sin of the world. One final note here. I want you to notice what's going on here in the book of Revelation. First, in chapter 4, as John describes the the, the throne and, and its surroundings, he says there are four living creatures around the throne and 24 elders. And he says in verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever, note that word whenever, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne. How often do they do that? (laughs) Continuously. They never cease. Verse 8 says, they never cease to say, holy. And by the way, isn't it amazing that we can read a passage like that? Isn't it amazing that we can read a passage like that and say, I wonder who the living creatures are, and I wonder who the 24 elders are, and I wonder what the eyes represent. Now, wait a minute. I, I, I don't want to imply that those questions are totally irrelevant. All I'm saying is, that ought not be the first thing that catches our attention. I mean, to, to, to seek the answers to those questions, fine, that's good. All I'm suggesting is, it's not the ultimate, it's penultimate. It ought not be the first thing that grabs our attention. The four beasts are not there for us to marvel at them. They are there marveling at the Holy God. And our response ought to be to join in with that and join in crying out with them, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God Almighty. He's the center of the throne room here, not the four beasts, not the 24 elders. All attention is on God. But, but wait a minute. I guess, I guess I've brought up another paradox. Because we get over into chapter 5, and what does it say? Well, verse 6, "...between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain." Seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, there you have a, a, a picture of Jesus going to God the Father, taking the scroll from his hand. And verse 8 says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, and every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And look at verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. I shouldn't have skipped 12. Verse 12. They were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It doesn't, it doesn't stop the worship and the adoration. Now, wait a minute. I said a minute ago, God, in chapter 4, is the center of attention in the throne room. And then we get to chapter 5. And it's the Lamb. And virtually the same things that are being said about God in chapter 4 are being said about the Lamb in chapter 5. And they're both receiving praise from the beasts, the elders, and everybody in the earth and in the heavens. Well, another paradox. Who's... who's who is the focus of attention here? Who is worthy of all praise? And that goes back to the Trinitarian God. One God and three persons. And one of those persons is the Lamb, Jesus, the Lamb slain to ransom people to God. He is King. He reigns. He reigns. And yet he's a lamb slain. He's lion and he's lamb. And similarly, back in our text, and I'm closing with this, as Jesus rides in as king, and yet humbly, what is the response of the crowd? They were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna! In the highest. They're praising Him. They're praising Him. And you can read the rest of this account and Mark's account and Mark 11, Luke's account and Luke 19. And He does not rebuke them because this is exactly what needed to happen. In fact, the scribes came to Him and said, listen to what they're saying. Stop them! And Jesus Response was, I tell you, if I stop them, the stones will cry out. He's the lion, lion of the tribe of Judah, king of kings, king of glory, Lord of lords. Before him, we're told, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. And he's the lamb. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The One who said of Himself, I am meek and lowly. The One who went to the cross like a lamb is led to slaughter. And didn't open His mouth 
Didn't resist. He could have called 12 legions of angels to his rescue. Could have called more than that, I'm sure. But he went like a little lamb led to the slaughter to lay down his life. And this is the point. This is where those two distinctions matter. He's king. He had authority, power over Pilate, over the Jews, over the Roman soldiers. Could have set himself free. He offered himself up. The King of glory. Offered himself as a Paschal Lamb to pay for our sins. And our response to that ought to be the same response that he was getting from these people as he rode into Jerusalem. It ought to be the same response going on in the throne room in heaven. Response of the elders and the beast around the throne. And all of the redeemed crying out and saying, You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. O Lord, to receive praise, glory, and honor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank You this morning, Lord, for Your wisdom. We speak of things here that we could have never, ever concocted on our own. No man could. And we pray, Lord, for continued grace to have our eyes open to the majesty of this Gospel message. Lord, may it motivate us to praise and worship thanksgiving And to reach out to others who need to hear. Truly, You are King. You are Lord. And truly, You are humble Lamb. Slain for the sins of the world. Lord, may we not wait to the last day to confess your Lord your Lordship your glory Lord may we do it here and now and continually Jesus Christ is Lord we thank you and ask these things in Jesus name Amen This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us 
or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.